This is an ABC podcast. I doubt I'd be here if it weren't for social media, to be honest with you, because uh, there is a fake media out there. I get treated very unfairly by the media, and I have a tremendous platform. I think I have 125 million people between Twitter and uh, Instagram and all of them, and Facebook. Mm. I have a tremendous platform. So, so, so when worry. somebody says something about me, I'm able to go bing, 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 and I take care of it. The other way, I'd never be able to get the word out. He's a big user of social media. The best ever, apparently. But he's certainly not the only one. Online platforms are playing an increasing role in the growth of populist politics. I'm Benjamin Moffat. I'm a political scientist at the Australian Catholic University in Melbourne and one of RN's top five humanities and social science resident academics for 2018. Today on Future Tense, we'll explore the relationship between social media and populist politics. What strategies are proving effective? What can we learn from the populists in Europe and elsewhere? And what does it all mean for the future of mainstream politics? Let's start in Spain with the leftist party known as Podemos. Spain's young people are again out on the streets of the capital, Madrid. They're angry at high unemployment and politicians, they say, are not doing enough to reverse the country's bleak economic prospects. Chanting, they don't represent us. The protesters so Podemos is a political party that was put together by some lecturers at a university in Madrid in order to present an electoral platform off the back of basically an upsurge of citizen protest and mobilisation in Spain after almost a decade of recession and austerity. And really the idea of the lecturers was to present an electoral front. So rather than just having assemblies and occupations and protests, which they'd had since 2011, they wanted to basically concretise that set of protests into a series of political demands and to do it in a, a avowedly populist way. Professor Simon Torme from the University of Sydney. They put the party together at very fast pace in 2014. To confess, I hadn't even heard of them when they presented for the European elections in two, that May 2014, and they scored 9% of the national vote. So from literally a standing start a couple of months before, they did extremely well. They got five seats in the European Parliament, and that meant that they then had a role nationally in speaking up for those people who were discontented with um, the current regime. From that, they then presented themselves for the general elections in 2016-2017, scoring 20%. So fairly consistently now, Podemos has kind of broken up the two-party system, which was the Partido Popular and the, the Socialist Party. They're now a third party. And there's also a fourth party, Suidadanos, which is a right-wing doppelganger of Podemos. So they've taken on a lot of the kind of messaging and a lot of the sort of new technology emphasis and populism and so on, but they do it from a right-wing perspective rather than a left-wing perspective. So you've now got two sort of new parties, two old parties, in really what's now a sort of four-party system in Spain. Spain's anti-austerity party Podemos has confirmed it's sticking to its leftist roots and its current leader. 
members overwhelmingly voted for the man with the ponytail, Pablo Iglesias, one of the movement's founders. Podemos play a sophisticated game. Their approach mirrors the multifaceted nature of modern media consumption and engagement. And, says Simon Torme, they clearly understand the social aspect of social media. So Podemos styles itself, its strategy, as what's called a transmedia strategy. So they're interested in using every single channel and every media strategy in order to reach the furthest extent of the Spanish electorate. So what they know is that, of course, you know, about a quarter of the Spanish population actually took part in the 15th of May protests. So that leaves three quarters who didn't. So in order not to get bogged down in just talking to a narrower constituency, their first act was actually to propose a television program to a national broadcaster. And they put on this program called La Tuerca, which is the, the screw. So they have a traditional media strategy, which is to host TV programs and to put forward a quite a simple message, actually, using the classic populist device of a single leader very articulate, very charismatic, and that's Pablo Iglesias and the other leaders in Podemos were very happy for this kind of traditional media strategy to focus on his character, his personality. One of the controversial things that they did was in the 2014 ballot was put his face on the ballot paper, knowing full well that a lot of people not necessarily au fait with the policies or the program, but they know what he's like because he's on TV a lot because they've got this TV program. So that was the kind of, if you like, the vertical dimension of their transmedia strategy. But of course, they've come out of a broad-based activist initiative, the, the Indignados, and they wanted to harness that. And so one of the things they were very keen on doing was making sure that they're using social network platforms. Uh, they were early adopters of Reddit, for example, as a way of discussing openly what the policies of Podemos should be. And they integrate social media into their strategy via what's called the circlos. So they invited activists in every town, every village, every profession to create a circlos, which would then be connected to the center, Podemos Center. So in every town, every neighborhood, you've got a Podemos circle where people discuss the issues of the day and they feed back ideas back into the center. So this is the kind of horizontality which is permitted by using a social media strategy. And there are about 400 of these circles, which are still active in Spain. And they, you know, there's an ongoing debate about how influential these circles are as far as the national strategy is concerned. And, and of course, that's normal. But what you've got is a, a complex ecology of messaging, of communication, which nonetheless gives people a sense of belonging and a sense that they're participating in things. Uh, as you know, I wrote a book recently with, with some people in, in, in Spain and, and John Keane here called The Spanish Political Laboratory. And it's a laboratory of experimentation. And the digital and social media side of things is, is an additional set of ingredients which they're using to catalyze activism, um, electoral results, and trying more generally to sort of refigure, to reconstruct, reinvent democracy in Spain. So how influential has the Podemos transmedia strategy proved over the long haul? What Podemos are now, we've got to be thinking we're four years down the road now. So they've matured, they've got an apparatus and an infrastructure and so on and a general approach. I mean, a couple of things here. Podemos didn't break through to national government, right? So it's stuck at 20%. 
So there are people who say, well, hold on a second, you know, the strategy hasn't been that successful because yes, they've got representatives, but no, they haven't been able to overhaul the PSOE, the, the traditional centre-left party. And actually, PSOE is doing quite well now because they've got a young, youthful leader, Sanchez themselves, and, and he's actually doing pretty well. Second thing is that, of course, when we're thinking about how older kinds of social democratic or left parties renew themselves, that they've been taking on board what Podemos has been doing. I mean, I think the classic case is, is momentum in the British Labour Party. So what you do is you, you, you within your intra-party form of mobilisation, you give a space to those people who want to have a much more activist, much more horizontal feel. And momentum's got that. If you're, if you're part of momentum, you feel that, you know, world's on fire and you've got all this drama and you've got messaging and there are meetings to go to and there's lots of very lively web pages and Facebook pages and all the rest of it. So you've got to harness that because that's what, you know, a kind of millennial post millennial audience wants to have. But you've also got things like uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, uh, La France Insoumise in France, very successful, bottom up, very charismatic. And from nowhere, he scored 20% in the French presidential election 2017. So I think that Podemos is not causing too much change. It is a symptom of change and how social media and, and the digitalization of, of, of politics is bringing forward a new constituency uh, and is speaking to a generation that quite clearly feels that this kind of mobilization is, is much more relevant than the old thing of sticking bits of paper through people's letterboxes and doorstepping and all that sort of stuff. But you still need to kind of do that as well. So what I think the takeaway for me from Podemos was very much that political parties are not dead. And also that if older political parties can take on board some of the lessons that Podemos are offering, then of course that offers a renewal of political parties in Europe. So I was one of those people who was quite skeptical when I started my fieldwork saying, I thought, you know, we're getting past the era of the political party. And really, the opposite has taken. Actually, political parties have now, I would say, you know, the last four or five years, re-entrenched themselves because of the nature of electoral politics. You know, if you actually want to get some stuff done, if you really want to change things, you do need an electoral presence. You can't just do that through occupations and assemblies and protests and so on. And I think that was the big lesson that, for me that came out of the Spanish situation in 2011. And that's why Podemos was able to get traction with the relevant group of activists. Elsewhere in Europe, Italy's five-star movement has also risen quickly from obscurity. Like Podemos, it takes a savvy approach to technology. Its leader and co-founder is Beppe Grillo. With Trump, exactly the same thing has happened as with my five-star movement, which was born of the internet. The media were taken aback and asked us where we were before. We gathered millions of people in public squares and they marveled. We became the biggest movement in Italy and journalists and philosophers continue to say that we were benefiting from people's dissatisfaction. We'll get into government and they'll ask themselves how we did it. Five Star is now the largest party in the Italian parliament. Dr Francesco Bello, a postdoctoral research fellow in digital media methods at the University of Sydney. So the Five Star Movement is a strange beast. It started out of a blog, actually, that was created in 2005 by a stand-up comedian called Beppe Grillo. 
And uh, that actually, he had a really strange relationship with technology. During his shows, he used to smash computers online. Then, of course, this dissatisfaction with technology changed and he started blogging in 2005 and people started replying massively to his blog posts in the commenting section. So what I decided to do in 2005 is to invite uh, commenters at that point to actually meet uh, face to face. And they use an online service uh, that is still uh, online, actually still uh, active. It's called meetup.com. It's a US website where people can just go create a group and basically invite people to places. And they did. And this basically created the base for the offline interaction of the movement. So in 2005, they created this and the movement kept growing. And then, of course, they started participating in elections, first local elections, regional elections. And then the big change, a big explosion on a national scale was the, was the participation in the 2013 a general election in Italy, when the party basically got around 25% of the national vote. Then after that, they won the mayorship in Rome, for example, and in Turin. And then in 2018, so the following general election, they got 32% of the national vote and they are now in government with the Northern League. And, and my point is that basically just using internet resources, so Facebook to communicate, Meetup to organize, and then they also created a platform to actually vote online. So just using the internet allowed uh, the technologies, they basically, uh, they, they were basically able to project themselves at the national level. From our side, we want to give the tools to the citizens. We have an operating system called Russo, to which every Italian citizen can subscribe for free. They can choose their candidate in regional and local elections and check what their local MPs are proposing. Absolutely any citizen can even suggest laws in their own name. This is something never before directly seen in democracy, and neither Tsipras or Podemos have done it. So the platform is quite sophisticated in terms of what you can do. So in their ideal uh, design, they will citizen will be able to also propose something on the platform. So far, as far as I can understand, they can basically just vote what has been proposed by the movement. This platform, Rousseau, is really the core of their proposal of reform. And so what they would like to launch on a more national uh, scale and what they intend for political and for citizen participation. What is basically being uh, criticized for is the lack of transparency of this platform. So we don't know exactly what this, how the system works. So it's not an open source system, for example. It is not clear what kind of process a proposal should follow in order to be put out of, uh, for vote. But also the big issue is that the whole website is managed by a private company. That is the Casaleggia Society. That is basically the, a small media company that was created by one of the two founders of the movement. And, uh, and Davide Casaleggio, so the son of the founder, the late Giancarlo Casaleggio, is the one in charge of the platform that basically is the democratic base of the entire movement. So the party's focus and philosophy is techno-utopian. But how has this internet-centric view of politics influenced the broader political field? Definitely it has changed Italian politics. On a practical level, definitely it has moved the debate online. So the weight that now 
social media debating plays both on the legacy media, so how they narrate what, so the Vox Populi, let's say, is now often what people are saying on Facebook, what people are saying on Twitter. It also changed the uh, attention that the leadership of parts dedicated to social media. So this radically changed after the 2013 election. So before the media was not really the place where the leadership was, the political leadership was, uh, was active. Now, with no exceptions, so the Northern League with, with Salvini is very active on social media. Basically, they're using social media to as a channel, not just to, to communicate with the base, but also to inform news agency about their plans. I mean, of course, these transitions are not just linked to the movement, but the importance that the movement gave to the online debating basically was, I think, that did change, especially because before the movement demonstrated to be really successful in 2013, these media were not taken seriously by the leadership. It is difficult to tell uh, at the end whether what is the essence of the Pfizer movement and whether this essence can actually be implanted into another country or might actually have an effect on another country. I think what is really demonstrated, the Pfizer movement, but also the Pfizer movement along with other projects, political projects in different European countries. I'm thinking, for example, of course, about Greece, but I'm also thinking about Spain with Podemos, but I'm also thinking about France with, with Macron, is that the system is open to contenders. I think that the Five Star Movement has proved, was one of the first to prove that by using the internet, you need to rely much less, much less on financial resources at the beginning. Then, of course, the, the, the problem is that as the movement grows, financial resources will actually arrive. But it's really difficult to break in in the first place. So what has demonstrated is that you can leverage the internet to construct a successful movement, to project yourself in the first phase of your political project with no significant financial support. And once you have done it, so basically by doing this, it demonstrates that the political systems are open to contenders. And of course, on top of this, you have to add a layer of dissatisfaction that is generalized everywhere. The, the Five Star Movement actually proposed an empowering tool, the internet. And this message actually can be probably, uh, might be used uh, somewhere else. So the fact that the response to the political disempowerment can be the internet, and the internet can be used by citizens to be placed again at the center of the political system, can be used, and I think it's appealing and it might be actually also be replicated somewhere else. Francesco Bailo from the University of Sydney. You're listening to Future Tense. I'm Dr. Benjamin Moffat. I'm a political scientist at the Australian Catholic University in Melbourne and one of RN's top five humanities and social science resident academics for 2018. We're exploring the relationship between social media and populist politics. So social media is being used by left and right to motivate and engage. But what about those who employ it to be intentionally destructive? Let's travel to the Philippines, where in 2016, President Rodrigo Duterte was accused of weaponizing Facebook through the hiring of a troll army. President Rodrigo Duterte admits paying people to defend him on social media. But Duterte says this only happened during the campaign season and not after he was elected. 
A University of Oxford study claims Duterte's camp paid 200,000 US dollars or 10 million pesos for a social media campaign in which volunteers and paid persons or groups used social media accounts to promote him or defend him against critics. The Philippines has one of the highest Facebook penetration rates in the world, partly because Facebook itself has subsidised or offered free internet access to many. And Manila has even been called the selfie capital of the world. Dr Nicole Carato is editor of the Duterte Reader and a senior research fellow at the Centre for Deliberative Democracy and Global Governance at the University of Canberra. The Philippines has a big diasporic community, so 10% of the population work overseas. And we're only talking about people with documents here. So there are migrants with no documents. That's not counted in that 10%. And one of the implications of that is you have a country that is deeply networked globally. So one of the studies, for example, that's often cited now is how parenting is being done uh, through mobile phones or through Skype, right? So you have here a society that's very, very comfortable using digital media, not only to maintain relationships, but also to portray their identities online. But I think the other caveat I want to raise here is somehow the impact of social media and politics can be overstated. There is a survey conducted by Pulse Asia that actually says a very little number of Filipinos actually use Facebook for politics. It's not even more than 50%. It's not even, I think, more than 20%. So we also have to be very cautious in terms of the role of social media in forming information, in terms of shaping political preferences. It's still very much hinged on television and on radio. But if that's true, what about the talk of Duterte's troll army? I think the premise here is the opportunity to use Facebook as part of anybody's political campaign was an opportunity that all political candidates had. And so when the reports came up that Duterte did have a troll army and Facebook trained them, the argument also is, well, all other presidential candidates had access to Facebook for that particular training. And there are many things to say about this. One is... The industry of trolling in the Philippines is not unique to Duterte. So maybe we use the word trolls now because there's some uh, morally reprehensible character to what they do as far as they threaten people who don't agree with Duterte, they threaten journalists, they threaten academics. But this is not particularly new as far as, um, let's say, corporations, advertising companies hire people to make something trend. So in a way, what Duterte did was to really just build on this very intelligent, creative workforce that the Philippines has, which used to actually support business process outsourcing. And when these industries shut down, you have a lot of skilled young people who are very well versed in online media to actually take on a new job of just being a troll. And so I have colleagues from the University of Massachusetts, Jonathan Ong, and from the University of Leeds, Jason Cabanas. They did an ethnography of trolling. And one of the findings that they have there is that while we tend to demonize trolls for supporting Duterte, what we're missing from the picture are the brokers, these advertising executives who actually make a profit selling this kind of services to politicians. Is this new? Not necessarily. Companies have access to this. Brands have access to this. So I think we have to understand the bigger political economy argument here, that there is a supply that just responds to a particular demand. Nicole Carato from the University of Canberra. Advertisers and tech companies have come under increasing pressure to ensure that political activity on social media platforms doesn't cross the line. How effective they have been and how committed is questionable. 
Jason Wilson is a columnist with Guardian Australia and has written extensively about extremism and the far right. Almost all the measures they have taken, they've been dragged kicking and screaming into taking or have done so under enormous pressure. I think that for a long time they either believed in their own very pro-free speech kind of stances and, and the sort of ideology they have about connecting people and how we can kind of resolve all the world's problems with this large connected conversation. And it took them a lot to pivot from that to realising that their platforms had an enormous amount of power, that they weren't necessarily in control of them and that they really needed to step in and exclude or moderate extremist content. And, you know, they've really only done that under pressure from activists, from journalists, from reporting that's been done on the kind of uh, damage and recruiting that's been done on these platforms. There have always been concerns, but roughly from 2014, from the beginning of what was called the Gamergate controversy to now, it's really taken them that long to take this, this kind of thing seriously, to really start to address issues about extremism, harassment on their platforms. And I mean, I think we've seen reporting in the New York Times in the last few days as I'm talking to you where um, it kind of details Facebook's reluctance, their defensiveness, their preparedness to engage in lobbying and to hire political consultants to sort of smear their critics rather than kind of addressing the underlying problems. One reason for that is that taking responsibility for moderation, taking responsibility for really monitoring who's using their platforms and how really stands a chance of affecting their bottom line. You know, moderators cost money. They've also operated in this kind of legal no-man's land in the United States where they're not classified as a, as a publisher, so they don't have to take responsibility for what goes on their platforms. You know, that's the Communications Decency Act back in the 90s, which has allowed this whole social media model to sort of flourish. They don't want to do anything to endanger that either. And, you know, they're caught politically between the political right in the United States who see them as censoring conservatives, censoring right-wing points of view, and Democrats and the left who see them as kind of promoting extremism and allowing, you know, the hacking of elections and what have you. So, you know, they've really struggled to deal with this and struggled to adapt to the, the knowledge that all of us now have that these platforms are very powerful and they are platforms that extremists use. So is the genie out of the bottle? Have the tech giants become so compromised by the profits they generate that they are not willing to genuinely address issues around populism and extremism? Oh, it's very, very hard to say. It would probably require the government to step in and to insist on regulating these platforms more closely um, and having them meet a higher regulatory standard. I don't know that these platforms are going to hold themselves to an adequate regulatory standard when it comes to extremism and, and election interference and the other problems that have come up. And I'm not sure that governments are really willing to do that either. Again, I'd point to reporting just in recent days about, you know, Facebook's efforts, successful efforts, really, to lobby politicians on both sides of the aisle to sort of blunt the impact of the political scandals that were enveloping them. It's difficult to see how that could happen. The only other thing, I suppose, that might make them come to their senses is some sort of large-scale user revolt, which involves people, you know, actually leaving the platform. That may cause them to reevaluate. But it's it's sort of hard to see that really happening 
either at this point, although it's a developing story, I suppose, in a developing situation. And certainly none of this helps the brand uh, and the reputation of these platforms, which is something else that they're very sensitive about. So, yeah, it would take a big shift, I think, but big shifts are not impossible. Well, yeah, you did mention that the genie is now out of the bottle, but I think it's always been out of the bottle. So in my own ethnographic work among local communities, um, some people who don't have access to social media, gossip is always part of political life. False information is always part of political life. What makes this different is the scale and the speed. But nevertheless, I think the issue is not the medium per se, but the political culture, how people engage with politics, the kinds of treatment that politicians have or relationship that they have with the people if they think that people are just citizens who can be manipulated, then this will be the case forever. So I think it's a medium, but it's not the problem. That was Nicole Carato from the University of Canberra. From Spain to Italy to the Philippines, thanks for joining me on this trip around the globe, examining how populists and their use of digital and social media may or may not be changing the face of contemporary politics. You've been listening to Future Tense, Thanks to producer Karen Savanovitz. The sound engineer for this episode was Dave White. I'm Benjamin Moffat. Thanks for joining me. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.